0: 2 Timothy, you've gone too far. Take a left. 1 Timothy. We're going to end tonight doing something a little bit different than what we normally do when we end. Um, try to keep from uh, Wednesday nights becoming too routine. I'm a very much a creature of habit, and so it's very easy for me just to do the exact same thing and say the exact same thing every week. Um, so I try to to change it up from time to time. And we're going to end tonight by meditating on about 10 verses from 1 Timothy. And uh, the book is six chapters. They're not long chapters, and it wouldn't take a a terrible amount of time to read it. But we're not going to read through it tonight. Um, Instead, when we end, I'm going to put up a few scriptures on the screen. I'm going to leave them up there uh, for just about 45 seconds or so. And give you the opportunity just to be still and to be quiet and to reflect and to think and to meditate. And when Christians talk about meditating, we're not talking about clearing your mind and um, doing the ohm and the fingertips and all that stuff. But we're talking about running scripture through your brain. Thinking about what it means. Thinking about how it might apply to your life. Thinking about the significance of it. And so we're going to do that when we finish. That's how we're going to end tonight. And uh, when we're done with that, I'll pray and and we'll wrap up. But when I came to 1 Timothy, the first thing that popped into my mind is the fact that Paul and Timothy had a very unique relationship. Paul was the mentor, Timothy was the protege, and so that got me thinking about the greatest mentors and their proteges from all of history. And so this is the definitive list. I didn't find this on the internet, I didn't look this up, this is just, I thought about it really hard, and I've come up with the definitive list of the greatest mentors and protégés. Number one on that list, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel-san, mentor and protégé. The next one, this one is for Corey, is Luke, mentored by Yoda and Obi-Wan. So there you go. After these guys, this one is one of my absolute favorites. Do you remember this? Cool Runnings, yes, based on a true story, and uh, in the movie, this is not the guy's real name in real life, but in the movie it was Irv Blitzer, and he mentored the Jamaican bobsled team, and the greatest line in that movie, if you're ever with Brooke and I when it's really cold outside, one of us is going to look at the other one and say, it's not so much the heat that'll kill you, but the humidity, and that comes from that line, so there you go. Irv and the Jamaicans. This one is another great one. It uh, definitely belongs on the list. Rocky and Mick, and uh, he's chasing the chicken. And I finally got to watch the new... I'm not calling it Creed. It's a new Rocky movie is what it is. Let's be honest. It's a new Rocky movie about Apollo Creed's son, but it's a Rocky movie. And one of the best parts of that movie is he makes him chase a chicken, just like Mickey used to make him chase a chicken. So that's a good mentor and protege. Here's some real life ones. This one is actually kind of cool. Those are four guys who lived a long time ago. And on the far left, you have a guy named Socrates who mentored a guy named Plato, who then mentored a guy named Aristotle, who then mentored a guy named Alexander the Great. That's a pretty good line of passing down knowledge. And, uh, So there you go. I don't know how you top that. Uh, Going to the Bible, I came up with a a few examples, obvious examples. Um, Anybody know who those guys are? Moses and Joshua. And I went with Charlton Heston for Moses. And uh, I went with the Bible miniseries. I'm pretty sure that's what that's from, the Bible miniseries. That's uh, Joshua. Uh, Jesus and the Apostles would be another example of a mentor and his protégés or his mentees. And then lastly, since we're talking about 1 Timothy, is Paul and Timothy. And uh, they had a very, very interesting relationship. And before we talk about the actual book, the actual letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, you need to kind of know some of the background between these two guys and some of the history of these guys, and I think it helps you appreciate some of the things that Paul is saying to him. So the first thing you need to know is that Timothy was from the town of Lystra, and uh at the risk of showing you something you may already know, I'm going to put this up here, that's where Lystra is. That's what we call Turkey today, and Asia, Galatia, Lycia, Sicilia, Cappadocia, Syria, those are Roman provinces of this territory. And so that's where Lystra is. And the line that you see right there is Paul's first missionary journey. And I've given you some of these scriptures. We're not going to turn to all these. You can look these up later. In Acts 14... Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary trip, right? They've set off from the church in Antioch. They're going on a missions trip. So they leave Antioch over there on the right, and they go to Cyprus, and they go from the east side of the island to the west side of the island, and then they come up through Pamphylia, and they go to Antioch and Pisidia, and then they come down to Lystra. And in Lystra, something really interesting happens. Remember, Timothy lives there, okay? He lives there with his dad and his mom and his grandma for sure we know they live there and Paul comes to town and he starts preaching and people start responding to the gospel and people get really excited and one of the amazing things that Paul does when he's in Lystra is he heals a crippled man a man who had a a chronic deformity in his legs or a chronic injury of some kind he's crippled Paul heals him and the guy gets up and he's walking around And the people in Lystra have never seen anything like that. They're totally blown away. And they're so impressed that they think Paul and Barnabas are gods, Roman gods, come down from the heaven to their city. They think it's Zeus and Hermes, the king of the gods and his spokesman. And they're just blown away that the gods have come down, and they they get so excited, and this all happens so fast. They take Paul and Barnabas, and they don't really know what's going on, and they just start this impromptu party, parade, celebration, and Paul and Barnabas are just kind of like, oh, they're really excited that we healed this guy. This is great. And then they realize they think we're gods, and they're about to offer sacrifices to us here in the middle of town. And they say, no, 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 no. Stop, stop, stop. We are not gods. We are men. And they preach the gospel and they tell, they tell these folks the truth about Jesus. So you say, what a great start to Paul's time in Lystra. Almost immediately, a group of Paul's enemies, a group of Jews, come from behind him. They're just sort of trailing behind him on this trip. They come to Lystra and they basically get a mob together and tell the mob whatever they need to hear to convince them, we need to take Paul We need to drag him through the streets of Lystra. And we need to take him outside of town and throw rocks at him until he's dead. Remember, Timothy lives in Lystra. This is his first exposure to Paul dude comes to town he heals a crippled man they have this big celebration because they think he's a god he says no I'm just a man I'm not a god don't offer sacrifices to me and then almost immediately the next thing he knows a mob is dragging Paul through the streets they drag him outside of the town they stone him and they leave him for dead outside of Lystra everybody thinks he's dead and this is one of the greatest stories in Acts we've talked about it on Wednesday nights what does he do? he gets up and he goes where? right back into Lystra right back into the town and he finishes what he needs to finish and then he moves on and the next stop on the trip is the, the town or the city of Derby. but that's Timothy's first experience with Paul heals the crippled man. They think he's a god. He stops the celebration. Next day, they drag him through the streets. They take him outside of town, pelt him with rocks, leave him for dead. Paul is brave enough and courageous enough to get up and come back into town. Timothy sees all of that. That's the first thing he he knows about the Apostle Paul. So then you come to Acts chapter 16, and the first missionary trip, Paul and Barnabas, they're done going around. They've done their thing. They finished up. Some time goes by, and Paul and Barnabas get together, and they say, hey, All those churches we went and started, all those people, we should go check on those people. We should go see what's going on, like the follow-up trip. And so they start to say, well, who's coming on the trip? Let's put the team together. And Barnabas says, hey, I want my cousin Mark to come. And Paul says, if Mark goes, I'm not going. And the deal was, Mark was on the first trip, and he sort of made it through about half of this, and then he quit and went home. We don't know exactly why he went home, but he quit in the middle of it. And Paul was ticked at him. He was not happy. He was so mad that he said to Barnabas, if you take that little punk mark. He didn't say punk, but it was that intense. If you take that guy with us, I'm not going. You can go with him and I'll go do my own thing. But I am not going on a mission trip with that guy. And so Barnabas, he's known as the son of encouragement, right? He's encouraging people. He's giving people a second chance. He says, look, I'm taking him with me. I don't care if you're the Apostle Paul or who you are. He's coming with me. So Barnabas and Mark go on their own trip. We don't really know anything about that. But we know Paul goes on another trip. And on that second trip, he goes to Lystra. And guess who he picks up in Lystra? Timothy. Gets to Lystra and he says, Hey, you are coming with me. Here's what you need to know about Timothy from Acts 16 his dad was not Jewish, his mom was Jewish. And we know from other passages in 2 Timothy, again, I gave you all these verses, you can look them up. We know that uh, Timothy's mom and his grandma had taught him the scriptures from when he was a little boy. That means the Old Testament. They've taught him the story of... Moses and creation and the Exodus and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Isaiah and all of it. They've told him all of those things. And on Paul's last stop through the town, Timothy got saved. He became a believer. And the book of Acts in chapter 16 says he's not only a believer in the church, but he's well spoken of by everybody in the church. He's one of their, you know, premier members. He's a leader in the church. Everybody looks up to him. And Paul goes to town and he says, Timothy, you are coming with me. And he takes him on this next mission trip. Um, 1 Corinthians 16 and 1 Timothy 4, 12. Uh, you look at those verses and the implication of them is that he was a younger guy. He wasn't quite as old as Paul or some of the other leaders in the church or the churches that they visited. And he tended to be timid. He wasn't necessarily real outgoing, real brash, real confident. He was he was a little bit more reserved. And you can look up some of the verses about that. 1 Timothy 5, uh, actually I think that's 2 Timothy 5, let me see here, maybe it's 1 Timothy 5, no it's 1 Timothy five twenty three. Paul tells him, yeah 1 Timothy 5.23. 23, um, he says, don't only drink water, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach, so apparently he had some sort of chronic health problem, something he dealt with and struggled with, and that was Paul's unprofessional medical advice to him, but his advice nonetheless. And then there's an interesting verse. I'll be honest with you. I learned something brand new today. I had never read in the Bible. I've read it a hundred times. I just it never stuck in my brain. Hebrews thirteen twenty three says at the end of that letter, whoever wrote Hebrews, you pick your whoever you want it to be. Whoever writes it ends and says, "Hey, good news. Timothy's out of jail." And I had never put that in my head that at some point Timothy had been put in prison. We don't know exactly what for. We assume if he followed in Paul's footsteps, it was for preaching about Jesus and the issues and the drama that tended to come up wherever Paul went. Maybe Timothy had to deal with the same thing. So at some point he was in prison. Here's the thing. He was one of Paul's closest friends. He was one of the guys that Paul really, really trusted. And eventually he he spent some time in Corinth. We know that he spent some time in Rome because when Paul writes to the church in Rome, he mentions him Uh, Is sort of a greeting there. But eventually he lands in Ephesus, and Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And uh, that was an important city, an important church, and Timothy was their pastor. Now this is tradition, okay? What I'm about to tell you is not in the Bible. I can't give you a verse for this. I'm just telling you what history tells us, and you can take this or leave it. I am not vouching for whether or not it's true or not. Tradition says that in the year 97 AD, Timothy was 80 years old. So you can do the math on how all of that works out, okay? 97 AD, he's 80 years old. He's still in Ephesus, he's still preaching, pastoring the church there in Ephesus. And you remember when we talked about the book of Ephesians, I showed you the temple of Artemis. The temple of Diana is one of these ancient wonders uh, of the world. This magnificent temple. And you remember Paul got in trouble in Ephesus because people quit worshipping Diana, Artemis and quit buying the little silver statues from the idol maker guy and he got really mad at Paul. So idol worship in Ephesus was a really big deal. Tradition says 97 AD, Timothy's 80 years old. There's a A parade for Diana going through the streets of Ephesus. And Timothy, 80 years old, remember the guy that used to be uh, timid and not quite so confident? He walks right out in the middle of the street. He stands in front of the procession and he just starts preaching a sermon. He just starts preaching about Jesus to this, this group of people walking through the streets celebrating this idol. And they grab him and they drag him through the streets and they kill him. That's tradition. Did that happen or not? I have no idea. But that's what church history tells us happened to Mr. Timothy. So let's talk about the actual book, okay? 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus all go together, okay? They're what is known as the pastoral epistles. Epistles just a fancy word for letter, okay? Pastoral letters. These are letters that Paul wrote to his friends who were pastors, not to missionaries like Paul, but to pastors, Timothy and Titus, guys who Paul said, look, you stay here. I'm going on to start new churches, but you're going to stay here and you're going to pastor this group of people. In these three letters, Paul writes to his pastor friends and he gives them instruction about uh, church life. And so if you like dates, I'm going to give you some dates. If you don't like dates, um, jump back in with us in about two minutes, okay? 59 A.D., that's when Acts 28 happens. Acts 28 is the last chapter in the book of Acts, okay? So we're in about 59 A.D. Paul is in house arrest in Rome. And you remember when we talked about Acts, it just ends and he's in a, in house arrest. You don't know what happens at the end of that. It's like the biggest cliffhanger ever. and. I believe Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, then he wrote the book of Acts, and I think he was going to write more after that. Each one of those books filled up a scroll, so he filled up his second scroll, and for whatever reason, he didn't get to the next one, or he did, and we don't have it. Acts 28, 59 AD, Paul is in house arrest in Rome. A couple of years later, he's released from house arrest. This is just piecing together bits and pieces we have from the New Testament. In about 65 to 66, he writes 1 Timothy and Titus. And then about a year later, 66, 67, he's arrested and he's sent back to Rome for the second time. Okay? The first time, he's in house arrest. Right? He's got people who are taking care of him, but he's not in a prison or anything like that. He's just house arrest. You've got to stay here till we adjudicate your trial and all that stuff. This next imprisonment, he's not in house arrest, he is in a dungeon. And you can visit that dungeon in Rome today. And it's basically a hole in the ground, carved out of rock, that when it rains, fills up with sewage. That's where they kept these guys. And you can go see that today. So, 66, 67, he's arrested, he's sent back to Rome. Uh, 67, he writes the book of 2 Timothy. And then uh, probably that same year, he's killed by Nero. That's tradition, pretty strong tradition from church history. And then we know from uh, Roman records that Nero dies in 68. So that just sort of gives you the timeline. These are the letters that Paul's writing at the very end of his life. And especially 2 Timothy is the last letter that he wrote. We'll talk about that next week. When you look at these three books together, it's very interesting the common themes that run through them. Okay, And you can see this in different letters that Paul wrote, because the same guy's writing, and he's writing about generally the same stuff. But really interesting, some themes in the pastoral epistles. The first one is this, that God is the Savior. And so, let's do this, because I want you to look these verses up. Julie, go ahead and put the next couple of these up here. One theme is that God is the Savior. Next theme is the idea of, of sound doctrine, Next is the idea that you should pursue godliness. Fourth, avoid controversies. And then one more, the quote-unquote faithful sayings. And so fill those blanks in, and then I want you to grab your Bible, and we're going to look some verses up. You can jot these down if you want to do that. I just want you to see these themes throughout the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Okay, so let's take the first one. God is the Savior. Look at 1 Timothy 1.1. 1. 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of our God and Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Look down at chapter 2, verse 3. It says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. To this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Flip over to the book of Titus, just a couple of pages to the right. Titus chapter 1. It says that the proper, uh, Titus 1 verse 3, I'm sorry, Titus 1 3. At the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Titus 2 verse 10. Not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then one more in Titus 3 5 says, He saved us not because of works done in righteousness but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, he saved us. Okay? When Paul sits down and he's writing to his pastor friends, he uses that word. He's our Savior. He saved us more, than, more consistently than any of the other letters that he's writing. That's on his mind. God is the Savior. Okay? Second theme, the importance of sound doctrine. Flip back and look at 1 Timothy 1:10. 1 Timothy 1.10. You can go back and read the context of all these. He's listing a group of, of bad folks. And he says, The sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Chapter 4, verse 6. Says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Chapter 6, verse 3 says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. Uh, Second Timothy, chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The sound words, sound doctrine. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Flip over to Titus chapter 1, verse 9. He's talking about Qualifications for an elder here and he says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. Chapter 1 verse 13 says this testimony is true rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. They have the right doctrine. They have the right faith. Chapter 2 verse 1 as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse 2 Older men, be sober minded, dignified, self controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Sound in your faith. And then jump down to chapter 2, verse 8. Talks about sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Okay? So he's writing to his pastor buddies, and one thing that's on his mind is God is the Savior. Another thing that's on his mind is that I want you to have sound doctrine. Third thing on his mind is I want you to pursue godliness. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 2. He's asking Timothy to pray and the church to pray. Verse 2, for kings and those who are in high positions. Why should we pray for them? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He wants them to pursue Godliness. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And he gives a little, a little short chorus from a hymn there, but he's talking about godliness again. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Godliness is on his mind. Look over at, uh, let's see, chapter, where am I at? That was chapter 6, 3. Look at uh, verse 5 in chapter 6. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Means of gain. Verse 6, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Jump down to verse 11. He says, as for you, man of God, flee these things, but pursue righteousness, and there it is again, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and uh, gentleness. Look over at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So he's given a negative example here, but godliness is still on his mind. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And that knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. God's the Savior. He's thinking about sound doctrine. He wants them to pursue godliness. And the next one is he wants them to avoid controversies. So look at 1 Timothy 1, 4. Backing up to verse 3 says, charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Don't argue about this stuff. Don't get caught up in this stuff. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, talks about someone who has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words that produce envy, dissension, slander and evil suspicions verse 5 and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means, means of gain second timothy chapter 2 thinking about these controversies second timothy 2:23 have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies you know they breed quarrels and then one in titus Titus chapter 3 verse 9 says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Okay? We're not going to look up the faithful sayings, but I'm going to give you the references if you want to read them. Okay? 1 Timothy 1:15, 1 Timothy 3:1. 1 Timothy 4.9, 2 Timothy 2.11, and Titus 3.8. It's the only place in Paul's writings where he says, here is a faithful and trustworthy saying, and then he fills in the blank. And he does it only in these pastoral epistles, these pastoral letters. And it's almost like he's writing to these guys and he's saying, look, let me give you something you can hang on to. Something that is really, really, really certain and true. This is bedrock foundational stuff. And he gives him these quote-unquote faithful sayings. So there's a reason I had us read all those. Okay, I want you to see those themes in the pastoral epistles. I just want you to use your brain. Paul is writing to pastors. And all the other letters we've looked at, he's writing to the church. The church as a whole. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. But now he's writing a letter to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. The person who's sort of on, setting the, the direction, setting the vision, leading the folks, setting the pace. And he's saying to them, look, these are the big things I want you to be concerned about. Okay? You need to understand that God is the Savior. You've got to chase after sound doctrine. You have to pursue godliness and you have to stay away from dopey arguments. That's pretty good advice for a pastor right there. Look, this is what your job is. You tell people that God is the Savior. You tell them that he can save them. You tell people this is your job, what is sound doctrine, and you've got to fight for it. There's going to be false teachers, so you're going to have to fight for sound doctrine. You need to pursue godliness. You can't just be somebody that stands up there and flaps your gums And says this is the right thing, this is the true thing, this is what you ought to do. You have to actually do it too. So pursue godliness and don't waste your time fighting about stupid stuff. You can spend a week arguing and bickering and chasing rabbits and it's just a waste. Don't do it. So this is pretty good advice for a pastor or I would even say for a Sunday school teacher or for a parent who's teaching their kids. These are pretty good things that you can take to heart. Here's the outline of the book. It's a really simple outline. I'm going to give you this, and then we're going to talk about the main main truths of the book. There's a greeting. There's a section about false doctrine. And then there's a section about church life, instructions about church life. Then he comes back to not necessarily false doctrine, but this time to false teachers. And then he gives some, some general instructions about being a pastor, pastoral ministry. And then he sort of wraps up a conclusion talking about the man of God. Here's the big idea of the book, really, okay? And this is on your outline. The big idea of First Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. They're called pastoral epistles. The big idea centers on ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is just a fancy word that means the doctrine of the church or the study of the church. Okay, Every church has ecclesiology, a structure, a system, a way that things are done, a hierarchy. Every church has it. And Paul is laying some just basic foundational truths down for Timothy as he's pastoring this church. And you remember, he's a young pastor. He tends to be timid. He's not quite sure of himself. And so Paul's encouraging him. He's saying, here's some, some really important things that you need to focus on. The first thing, when Paul talks about ecclesiology to Timothy, that he talks about is elders and deacons. I'm just going to tell you that when you study church history and you look at different structures of ecclesiology, how the Catholic Church does it, how the Episcopal Church does it, how the Baptist Church does it, how the Presbyterian or the Methodist or whoever. Okay, there is lots of different setups. And I'm telling you that that's probably okay to some degree because the things Paul says here are pretty general, but a lot of those systems have just totally missed the plain instructions in the book of 1 Timothy is really not rocket science. And sometimes pastors and theologians make it out like it's some kind of rocket science. you got to be brilliant to get it. It's not that hard when you read the instructions. And this is one thing that you need to get. I did not put this uh, on your outline, but put up these, uh, these positions here, okay? You need to know these words if you're going to understand church according to the New Testament. Elder is a position in the church. That's the Greek word here. Sometimes it's translated bishop, depending on what translation you have, but it's the same thing, and it comes from the Greek word episkopos, episcopalian. okay? And then the last Greek word is poimen, and it means pastor, and I misspelled misspelled that, P-A-S-T-O-R, pastor, misspelled my own job. Um... I'm not a good speller, but that's kind of embarrassing. Here's what you need to know. Those positions, elder, overseer, bishop, pastor, they are all talking about the same person in the New Testament. They're all talking about the exact same person. This is not some hierarchy where you say you got pastor and then you got bishop and then you have the episcopate and then you have this and you have and all these. This is all talking about the exact same position. And they're used interchangeably. Sometimes they're used together. Sometimes they're used differently in Titus than Timothy. But they're all talking about the exact same position. And the distinction is between all of those, okay, elder, overseer, bishop, pastor, all the same. There's a distinction between that And that's about the extent of the structure that's set forth in the New Testament. The New Testament says, you want to know how to structure your church? You need to have some pastors, elders, overseers, bishops, whatever you want to call them. You pick the term. You need to have some of those guys. You need to have some deacons. You need to have some of those guys. That's how you set the whole thing up. And so just look. We're going to read it quickly. 1 Timothy 3. Starting in verse 2, well, I'll just start in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. Here's one of these faithful sayings, okay? saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and when you read the word overseer there, you know that's the same as pastor, that's the same as elder, that's the same as bishop. It's, it's all the same thing. If anyone aspires to that office, he desires a noble task. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Look, that's pretty basic. It's not hard to understand that. I don't need to go through and explain each of those words to you. You get it. And the interesting thing to me is when Paul lays it out, qualifications for overseers, almost everything he says in that list is a character trait. It's not you got to be a dynamic personality. It's not you got to dress cool. It's not you got to have the best this or that or whatever. It's talking about the heart of the person doing it. He's saying this is the character of the person that you put in this position. And then he talks about deacons right after that. Okay? The only passage right here in the whole New Testament that says this is the qualification list for a deacon. You can go back to Acts 6 and you can say, well... They're looking for deacons. They look for men who are full of Holy Spirit and men who are wise and things like that. Great. But here's the, the only real list. Deacons, likewise. And when you see that word likewise, do you know what that means? Everything I just told you really applies to the deacons too. It's not like two totally separate lists. It's not like you got to be this great to be an elder and then you only have to be this great to be a deacon. What he's saying is, look... The same thing applies for both of them. And why did he not make it one list? I don't know. He didn't want to make it one list. He made it two. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Interesting that that verse 10 right there was not mentioned on the elders list. You say, wait a minute, you don't have to be tested to be an elder, but you have to be tested to be a deacon? No. Likewise. Verse 8. Likewise. We're working off the same ideas here, okay? These are broad principles. Verse 11. Their wives should be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay. There's some little things we could get in the weeds and we could debate this and this and this on those lists. For the most part, that's pretty straightforward. You're looking for somebody who is who they say they are. When you're looking for a deacon in your church or an elder pastor, shepherd, overseer, bishop, whatever you want to call them, you're looking for somebody who holds to the truth and they really are who they say they are. The things that they believe actually get played out in their life. And here's the craziest part. Are you ready for this? Every one of those qualifications, starting in chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down to 13. Every one of them, except possibly the idea that you need to be able to teach up in the top section. All the rest of them, I can take you to another place in the New Testament that say it ought to be true of you. So it's not like we're saying, pastor's way up here, everybody else is way down here. He's just saying If you're going to put somebody in charge and give them a place of authority and a position of influence, you need to make sure that they are the real deal. And that's what he spells out there. So he gives qualifications for uh, elders and deacons. He does give sort of a job description for the the elder overseer pastor. Over in chapter 5, verse 17, he talks about elders who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, and he talks about elders who rule well. And I think those are the two basic ideas of being a pastor or an elder or whatever word you just love to use or you're not comfortable using, fine. Pick one of those words. That's the gist of it. Rule well, not meaning you're a tyrant, you're a dictator, but you lead your people, and number two, you teach them. You lead them and you teach them. You're moving in a direction, you're going forward with the gospel, and you're teaching your people the truth. Those are the two, two uh, responsibilities, or you could say job description. Okay, Here's the next thing. We're talking about ecclesiology in 1 Timothy. He's laying the groundwork for Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. And one of the things he takes a lot of time to talk about is caring for widows. What he's talking about here is caring for people in your church who are particularly vulnerable and in need. That would include widows today, and it would also include a variety of other people that you can sort of connect the dots on that. But caring for widows, caring for for the vulnerable. Look at 1 Timothy 5, and we're not going to read it all, but 1 Timothy 5, verse 3 all the way to 16. The only thing he talks about in that section is how the church ought to take care of widows. And he gives some really specific instructions. And some of them you would probably read and say, oh, that sounds obvious. That's a good idea. And some of them you would read and say, "Huh, that's kind of surprising that he would say that. And so you can work through them on your own. Um, Here's just some, some big ideas. One thing he says is family takes care of family before church takes care of members. That's a principle. He lays it out at the beginning of this section and the end of it. If you've got family around, it is your responsibility to take care of your family before their church has to step in and take care of them. That falls to you. And he hits that several times. He's really serious about that. And he talks about not being a burden to a particular church. Because you're not taking care of family members. And he basically says, look, if you're not going to take care of your family members, you're worse than a lost person. Paul's words, not mine. 1 Timothy 5, 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and he is worse than an unbeliever. Family takes care of family. Okay? small little parentheses over here, I'll just tell you. Remember when we were in Thessalonians and Paul talked about idlers? Remember what he said about idlers? They don't work. What? They don't eat. When you read 1 Timothy 5, 5, 8, you don't forget about Thessalonians. You don't say, oh, well, you know, I have to do it. You hold both of those things and you figure out what it looks like in your situation. Okay but family takes care of family. Another thing he says is you only sign up widows to receive help if they're godly ladies. If they're gossips, if they're divisive, if they're not devoted to prayer, they don't get help. That would shock some people today. To go through that process and to say, "You know what? That doesn't line up." That's the instructions that Paul gives. One thing that he says is uh, he gives some guidelines in verse 9 and 10, specific things that that are kind of helpful. But then he also talks about younger widows and the danger of enrolling them. So, again, you you can read through that. We're not going to get into the weeds too much on that for the sake of time. I just want you to understand he's, he's writing to Timothy the pastor, and he's saying, look, Timothy, there's some people in your church who need your help. They need your help, and it's your responsibility to help them. And you balance everything he says about helping these vulnerable people with what he said to the Thessalonians where he said, if you don't work, you don't eat. Those things go together. And what he's saying to Timothy is there's some people who are not going to be able to help themselves. And you have an obligation to help them. Now, I want to be clear about something. We get people every week that walk into our building and they walk in, not all of them, many of them with an arrogant, entitled, brash attitude, expecting me to pull out the envelope from what we collected on Sunday and just start doling it out. And we help people in our community. We help them by taking money from the offering, sending it to the Permian Basin Mission Center, where people can go get food, a giant box of food, once a month for free. All you got to do is go down there and pick it up. And we send plenty of money down there to help plenty of people every month get one of those big old boxes if they need it. But here's what I hear when people come in and I say, look, here's how we handle it. We, we give them a brochure. We send you down there. This is where they're located. They'll get you a food box. They'll take care of you. And they just look at us, me or Corey or whoever, and they say, I thought you were a church. Usually I just sort of stare at them. Because I just want the conversation to be over at that point, if that's their attitude. But sometimes I'll just stop and say, we are a church. And here's the things that we're really, really focused on. Making disciples of all the nations. That's the mission. That's the overarching purpose, to make disciples of all nations. Do we need to take care of the poor and help and contribute? Yes, and we do that, and this is how we do that. But our purpose as a church is not simply to be a relief agency. It's to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and to make disciples. And sometimes people are really confused about that. Um, but Paul says to Timothy, look, sound doctrine, sound doctrine. Watch out for false teachers. You've got to fight for the faith. You've got to pursue godliness, all those things. And then he says, don't forget. You're going to have some people who need some help. And if they need help, you need to take care of them. And I'll just tell you this before we move on, so you know how we do things. That's what we do for people who come in from outside. We say, we give money to the Permian Basin Mission Center, they will help you out. When we have members that come in, totally different process. When we have people who are part of our church family come in, we don't just say, head down the road, they'll take care of you. We meet those needs and help those folks in that way, So, just so you know. So he talks about elders and deacons, talks about caring for widows, and then he talks about men and women. And I'm going to be real honest with you on this, okay? I almost left this off. I just almost skipped it. Because I thought, you know, somebody's going to get mad at me. And I'm just going to skip it. And I bet most of them won't notice. And I bet most of you wouldn't. But some of you maybe have read 1 Timothy today. And there's a verse in here that's kind of a strange verse. I'm not going to lie to you. This is why I almost left it off. But we're not going to leave it off because I'm not afraid of it. And my job, remember when uh, in the book of Acts, when Paul was meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus, I think it's about Acts, oh, I couldn't give you a, a chapter. Um, it's after, I think, 19. He's meeting with these guys. and He knows it's the last time he's going to talk to them. And he says to them, you need to preach the full counsel of God to your church. Don't hold back. And he says to those elders, he says, Jesus died on the cross for your church, and it's your job to take care of it. And it's so valuable that Jesus died to purchase it, and your job is to teach the whole counsel of God to them. And so we're going to look at it. We're not going to skip it. So look at 1 Timothy 2, and we're going to start in verse 9, and we're going to go to 15. And I'm going to tell you how some people respond to this and then I'm going to tell you what I think about it and then we're going to meditate on some some great verses from the book so verse 9 likewise he said what men are supposed to do men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling likewise also he desires in every place likewise that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control Not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, There's a lot of folks that would just soon rip that out of the Bible and say, forget that. That's not 2016, United States of America, democratic society, free society. We're done with that. That's old school. That's back in the day when there was just a bunch of male chauvinists holding women down and suppressing women. And we are way past that. Forget about it. We're done. I, okay, let's just agree. We're not ripping it out. Okay, we're not going to rip it out. Okay, next step is you have a lot of people who say, okay, leave it in there. But you understand, these people say, it is just a cultural thing. It's just cultural. In different cultures, that doesn't apply. Okay, just being real straight with you. Because of the culture we live in, that's a comfortable position to take. To say, because of what's around us, is just to say, this is just cultural. We're kind of embarrassed by it, but you know, Paul, he lived a long time ago as a different society. It's not true anymore. Here's the, the one, maybe two problems with the idea that it's just cultural. Paul is not the only guy talking in this book, correct? We believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the words of the Bible and that, yes, they are Paul's words, but they're also God's words. So just you flip the page over. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So it's no good to just blame this on Paul. Because this is not just Paul sitting down, sort of daydreaming stuff up. This is the Holy Spirit of God inspiring Paul to write these words. And one of the things that he writes in there is really important. When he makes his argument about this is what men should do, this is what women should do, he goes back and look what he says in verse 13. This is the key to the whole thing. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam formed first, then Eve. That does not mean Adam was better than Eve. Adam was more important than Eve. Adam was more like God than Eve. doesn't mean any of those things. What what he is saying is, when he says, Adam formed first and then Eve. He's saying, look, this is how it ought to go in the church. And I'm going to tell you why. Because there's a way that God created things to operate. It goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. Before Genesis 3 when sin comes into the world. He does talk about that. But first he goes back before that to the creation order. When God looked on everything that he had made and what did he say? This is very good. He says, this is the way that I wanted it to be. And Paul says there's something that God has built into creation that has something to say about this issue of men and women and how they relate in the church. So I'm going to tell you the two two approaches, okay? Put some words up on the screen for you. One is called the egalitarian position and one is called the complementarian position. And people try to be cute and come up with like, put something in the middle of those two or come up with different things. There's really two, okay? There's two ways to slice this loaf of bread. Egalitarian or complementarian. Egalitarian says men and women are equal in status before God and completely equal in roles given to them by God. There is zero distinction in what a Man, husband should do, or a woman, wife should do. It's complete, complete, total, everything is exactly the same. That's the egalitarian position, okay? Other position, and I'll just be honest, there's people who love Jesus who take that position, okay? To be fair, they love Jesus, they believe that's right. The other position is a complementarian position that says, okay, now I'm on the bottom word, complementarian, Men and women are completely equal before God. One is not more important than the other. One is not better than the other. One is not smarter than the other. Completely equal in status before God. In his wisdom, God has given them complementary roles. They're different roles and they complement each other. Like you go to a fancy restaurant and you sit down and they give you something to drink and eat and they're a great chef. All the tastes complement each other. They work together on your palate, and it's a pleasing thing. And this second position says, look, completely equal in status. We're not arguing about who's better. We're saying God has given them different roles in what they're supposed to do. And when we talk about these positions, this complementarian position, what we're talking about is in a marriage relationship and at church. Those are the two realms we're talking about, okay? Okay. Marriage relationship in church. And the complementarian says this I think it's a pretty strong argument. They say, in the Trinity, three persons, one God, right? That's the doctrine of the Trinity, Orthodox doctrine. Three persons, one in essence. The Father is not more God than the Son. And the Son is not more God than the Spirit. And the Father is not above the Son, or the Father is not better than the Son or the Spirit. They are all God, really, fully God. The Father plays a role, and the Son plays a role, and the Spirit plays a role. And those roles complement each other. And what did Jesus say over and over and over again when he was on the earth to his disciples? He said, I have come to do my Father's will. I'm submitting to the Father. Does that mean Jesus is a doormat? He doesn't. Sound like a doormat when I read through the Gospels. Sounds like he understood I have a role to play in this. Father has a role to play in this. Spirit has a role to play in this. Everybody's going to play their role and we're going to work together and it's a complementary thing. The Father's job is to to plan it all and the Son's job is to accomplish it all and the Spirit's job is to apply it all. And you add all of that together and you and I get saved. It's a great thing and they play complementary roles. And the complementarian says, look, we're not talking about who's better, right? Everyone up there believes Genesis 127, he created them in the image of God, male and female, he created them. Both created completely in the image of God. The complementarian position is saying, based on what Paul says here, and there's some other verses, based on what he says here, there's something God has built into creation that says these complementary roles work well together. And what he's saying to these ladies, because there's some tough, some tough statements, right? He's talking about a woman learning quietly. And verse 12 is really important. Look what he says in verse 12. Learning quietly with all submissive miss, verse 12. Do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Remember when we looked just a little bit earlier, flip the page at chapter 5, and it gives this job description for elders. And he says elders rule that's sort of a word of authority right ruling and then he says right below that preaching and teaching ruling preaching and teaching that's the combined job description of the elder it's not a coincidence in the same book that he combines those same two ideas right here and what he's saying to these ladies in Ephesus who are in Timothy's church is look God has set it up so that the way he wants it to work is that the husband leads his wife, and the wife helps her husband. Both equal, but that's how God set it up to work. And he's saying in the church, we've got these elders, uh, these overseers, these bishops, whatever you want to call them, and he says God's called these men to lead, And he's called the women to be a part of this. And it's a great thing. They have complementary roles. And when he says down at the bottom, they're going to be saved through childbearing, he doesn't mean when you go to the hospital and you deliver normally or through a C-section, suddenly that's when you become a Christian. That's not the point. What he's saying is, God has given you the role of being a woman. It's a great thing. You don't need to be all upset about that. Be who God has made you to be, and that's a great thing is what he's trying to say to these people. So I'm going to tell you this, okay? If you want to talk about it, I would love to talk about it with you, and we can argue, debate, or answer questions, or whatever you want to do. I'll just tell you this. From this passage, and there's others, many others in the New Testament that we can look at together, I'm convinced from the text of the New Testament that the best place to land on those two things, on men and women, ecclesiology, men and women in the church, is the complementarian position. And to say, God has called husbands to lead their wives, and he's called men to lead this church, and we have complementary roles, and we all work together. I say that based on what I see in the text. And first and foremost, let's be honest, that's what really matters. If you're going to convince me of a different position, you're going to have to prove it to me from the text. You're not going to come talk to me about modern psychology and this and that and all sorts of newfangled stuff. You're going to have to show me in the text of the Bible. And I promise you this. I will change any and every belief that I have if you can show it to me in the text. Show it to me in the Bible what it says and I'm with you 100%. I will also tell you this. From having been a pastor all of my my long long 10 years and talking to a lot a lot too many in 10 years of married couples who are struggling okay they come to me and they want marriage advice and counseling and this and this and this I can tell you I sit down and I'm telling you if you get off that complementarian position it doesn't work I'm not saying it necessarily means you're going to get divorced. I'm not saying it necessarily means you're going to hate the person you're married to. I'm just telling you, the people I've talked to when they come in, that's always part of the issue. It's always part of the issue. Not just that the wife won't submit and know her role. That's usually the smallest part of it. The vast majority of what I say when I talk to couples and this sort of stuff comes up is to say to the husband, you don't love your wife like Christ loves the church. Why do you expect anything else to be different than what it is right now? You want to be Mr. Big Stuff on a complementarian position, do what you're supposed to do. Husband, if you do what God has called you to do as the husband, and you love your wife like Christ loved the church, and He gave Himself for her to purify her and to make her clean, if you do that, you're not going to have to worry about the dirty S-word, submit. You won't have to worry about it. It's not going to be an issue. Do what you're supposed to do. That's your role, husband. That's the whole point of complementarian, right? It's complementary roles. Both people have a role to play, and I think that's what Paul's getting at here. So, that's my take on it. I don't think it means you have to be pregnant and have a baby to be saved. I don't think it means you have to come to church, and in my Sunday school class, if you have certain chromosomes, then you can't ask a question or raise your hand or chip in an idea or anything like that. I don't think that's what it means at all. I think what it means is when I put it together with the other passages in the New Testament, it works best how God created it to work. And how he created it to work is for husbands to lead and for pastors to lead. And he has a plan in that and he's not foolish in that. And there you go. Take that for whatever it's worth. And if you want to slap me later, you can slap me. If you want to argue about it later, we can argue about it, talk about it. I'd be happy to do that. Here's how we're going to end. I've picked some really great verses from 1 Timothy.